Sign up for Rock on Tours Extra and get exclusive access to video interviews, bonus episodes only available to subscribers, listener Q&As and early bird access to our upcoming live shows. To find out more and to subscribe, go to rockontours.com. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. So, Guy, I saw you sent me a picture of your booth, your lovely new booth. And my I, it's, lovely it's new your, booth. It's your podcast booth, isn't it? It is my podcast that my I've actually because I've you know I moved to the country last year and I built myself a little studio in the garden and I was putting the whole vocal booth in and I said to realize, actually how much singing is going to go on here what do I really do these days it's rock on touring so I've now I've sort of been slowly making this booth so it's it's basically a podcast booth Hang on. you didn't get your carpentry tools out did you no I had a man you had a man very good I'm glad to hear it because I was quite scared when I saw it <laughs> You sent me a picture. I think you should put it up on our social media. I am going to put it up on the social media because I'm very, very proud of it. And I've actually managed to use, it's very A-team. It's all stuff I had lying around, very Apollo 13. I've repurposed various lights and tables and stands. And you, you must feel at home because it's basically a padded cell. It is a padded cell. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, good one today. That rarest of beasts in the jungle, the singing bass player. But the voice of rock. And the he's called the voice of rock. of rock, isn't he? He is called the voice of rock. and uh, But he's, the whole point is he's the voice of everything. I mean, he's got so much stuff in his box. Yeah, because he's, he's primarily a, I don't want to say heavy rock singer, but he's a rock singer. I mean, he's, he's, he's you know, he's been, um, been in purple and he, in trapeze, but it also brings soul chops as well. I think it's because that's where he comes from. Like so many of those people from back then, like the Cove, like others, is that he comes from, you know, that R&B world. The Tamla Motown, in a way. Yeah, Tam, from, yeah. from the Midlands. From uh, the Midlands. So he's part of that Birmingham mafia of Moody Blues and uh, The Move. The Move uh, and, uh, yeah. Robert Plant and, you know, there's, there's plenty. And Stevie Winwood. But traffic, I guess. But he started off in trapeze in the uh, late No, 60s, he started off in Finders Keepers. Finders Keepers. We'll get to that. What's that track called? Sadie the Cleaning Lady, <laughs> which was right, an Australian right. hit originally. Right. And then he moved on to be in the Deep Purple with doing um, Burn, Stormbringer Burn. and Come Taste the Band. And his contribution was fantastic. He joined with, with Coverdale, obviously, so there's been lots of Coverdale stories. And um, <clears throat> yeah, he's currently working with Joe Bonamassa in um, Black Country Communion. Black Country Communion. But the thing I really want to get to is the KLF. He was on the KLF record. He was. Which, what was that called? It's called What's, What's Time Is Love, but it was, it's not the original record. It's one they did specifically for America. And they literally just say the record is written as, hi, we're the KLF and we're coming to America. We're coming for you. Wow. It's brilliant. Very arty. Let's um, get him on. Welcome to the Rock and Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on! 
Hey, Glenn. Hi, Glenn. Fantastic, man. This is... What a joy. How are you? We're great. How are you? I'm okay. It's a bit hot in Europe. Where are you? Uh, Czech Republic. Ah. Nice. I'm Gary. You know the guy. Hey, You've played with him, have you? No, I don't think we've met, Glenn. I live in America, but I've ne- I haven't met either of you fellas. I'm a big fan. Ah. Uh, well, we've done lots of similar things. That you know, I used to work with John Lord a lot. He was a very, I very dear it. friend. Yeah. Uh, I played on his recording of a concerto, and um, yeah, all, there's all sorts of stuff where we're kind of. And there's one quite weird one which I'm looking forward to getting to. But mate, cool. what a, you know, so great to have you here. So you're you're on tour with uh, Glenn Hughes sings Deep Purple Classic. What's the title? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm still here, you know, doing what I've been doing for decades, and I'm so grateful. But it's the, it's, you're doing the Deep Purple tracks on, on tour at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I'm doing the... Because the Burn album was recorded 50... Can you believe? 50 years ago. Wow. So wow. I'm uh, the guy that's doing... Still can do those songs. So it's my honour to uh, to do that. Gary sent me a clip last night of a thing. It was from only a few years ago of you with Bruce Robinson. Uh, Bruce Dickens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the John Lloyd. Yeah. yeah. But your falsetto... <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. unbelievable that that's still there it's, yeah. it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard unbelievable thank you I'm, I'm from the north as you know and back in the 60s I'm older than you two fellas but we had a lot of <laughs> cover songs and playing in the pubs seven sets a night the Beach Boys were very popular and we, we had a harmony band so I was always the high voice you know ah. So but I, I love singing full set up we want to get back to that because I'd love to. There's all this finders keepers, and um, that's right. Yeah, the one thing I haven't been able to find. Did you sing on Sadie the Cleaning Lady? I did. No, 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 no. I was background vocalist. Sadie the Cleaning Lady. I tried to look that up, and it was it was done by someone else completely. It was a cover. It was, no, it was Johnny Farnham. John Farnham. That's right. As we know, we are words. That's correct. Yeah, which I played on the demo of. Yeah. Oh, really? That, yeah, that was his first hit. He was. And he was really? He, he was little Johnny Farnham then. He was no eighteen. Way. Yeah. Australian. Yeah. Yeah, Australian. Wow. wow. So, so, but I just wanted to finish off on that. Amazing, because I direct people to YouTube to see. I thought it was the the John Lord Memorial it's correct. concert. It was right, and you sing this time around. Yes. Obviously, from the Purple album, "Come Taste the Band." Correct. Unbelievable. Thank you. You are the voice of rock, and but the more than that, much more than that, because at times. You're Stevie Wonder. Exactly. Yeah, well, I was say, that's the, yeah, your toolkit is... I grew up on, as all of us did, uh, Beatles and the Stones and the Who and, and, you know, and then all of a sudden in 1965, I, I heard Tamla Motown. And, of course, I heard the great voices of Tamla, both men and women. And I just fell in love with Stevie. And I met Stevie a few years later became really good friends and, oh, wow. I, you know, so I'm a rocker, as you know, but I'm also an R&B fanatic. That's why you're quite similar to Coverdale, isn't it? In the- yes, he's a, he's a blues, I'm an I'm a R&B. Well, it was interesting because we've had him on a couple of times because I played for Whitesnake as well. We had, oh, my um, God. But, but it was interesting because I was saying to him, if he hadn't got the purple shout, it's like almost like he could have been a Robert Palmer type character. And yeah. it's like you could have kind of gone anywhere you wanted. 
Yeah, I love soul music, you know. So for me, it's it's a crossover, you know, you, a little bit of a soup. I like R&B and, and funk and, and rock, you know. But that happened when you joined Purple, didn't it? There was definitely a shift yeah. yes. with you and Cov towards doing more soul and funk. And, and you really felt that, I mean, especially on Stormbringer. Yeah, you know, I joined the band and they were like straight down the middle, classic rock. As you know, Machine Head was straight down the middle. And when I joined, they knew they were getting a groovy bass player that could sing, you know, sort of uh, the R&B stuff. So, yeah, it was an interesting combination with David and myself. It was brilliant. Now, I want to jump on this because as a bass player, apart from being the voice of rock, your bass game is amazing. You you absolutely could have just been a bass player. So how did that, did you start on the bass? How did it start? Why the bass? How did you get so good, so quick? I've got a good story for you. I was named after Glenn Miller. Ah. So I was playing trombone in the school orchestra when I was 11. (laughs) Ah. So, and then all of a sudden I saw the Beatles on Muriel Young, 1963. And I said to mom and dad, can I get one of those guitars? You know, so then I traded the trombone for a guitar, a sexier instrument, I may add. Where would that have been bought? Was there a sort of rock shop up in the Midlands? Oh, yeah. Uh, the local the local rock. What was it? Store. Can you remember what it was? Oh, it was a Futurama. Oh, there you go. Nice. Yeah, Futurama. Yeah, God. Yeah. But that, hey, that was a guitar, not a bass. Yeah, I was a guitar player for four years. And then as most, I don't know about you, Guy, I mean, a, a lot of bass players stop by playing guitar, right? Yeah, no, I didn't. Correct? I didn't. I started really? with bass. Yeah. Look at you. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I still, you know, play guitar. I write, obviously, on guitar. So, But I, I love any stringed instrument. I love playing guitar and bass. Oh, right. We say every string. What about the trombone? <laughs> oh, uh, well. <laughs> Do you keep your chops up? <laughs> it's been a few years, but no, I, I haven't had one in my mouth for a while. So where was it you grew up, Glenn? Cannock, Staffordshire. Cannock, right there. Where is that in the world? Oh, What's wow. the, where is that? Is that Midlands? It's yeah. right. It's about 17 miles north of Birmingham, but I've lived in, in LA for 48 years. No, I tell you why, I'm j- I was just wondering, because obviously, you know, Robert Plant was around at the same time in the Midlands, and his big band was Small Faces. And I get a feeling that that might have been, was the Small Faces in your world, given that you love Tamla? Yes, absolutely. Again, the British R&B, which I call The Who and, and The Small Faces, you know, was a big part of my component growing up as a, a mid-teenager in the North, you know, so... I uh, grew up listening to rock and soul music and what eventually we call funk music. Right. First underground nuclear kitchen. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 Are yeah, you yeah. one of those people who, did you tend to be a few years younger than the people you were playing with? Hmm. You know, you're that bit younger, aren't you? I was yeah. in, in, in Trapeze and, and Deep Purple. I was like, mm. I think John was eight, nine years older than I and Rishi was seven years older than I and... Um, yeah, and I was always the youngest, and now I'm the oldest. <laughs> so, but I'm really grateful <laughs> to still be doing what I love. You know. But when did you first start getting into bands? Trapeze weren't your first band. Obviously, Those we were talking earlier keepers, about Finders yeah. Keepers. Yeah. How did that happen? Was that a school group? Yeah, that, that was just you know when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, playing for the kids at school. But Finders Keepers, my first. I was getting real young in that band. I was 16 years old. And we played covers, you know. And then we formed Trapeze and started to write our own music in 1969. 
Yeah, that first trapeze album is interesting, isn't it? Because there's obviously psychedelia in there. Yes. But there's prog rock as well. It's very Baroque. The band and you, I mean, the gear shifts that go on in your career are quite extraordinary, which just proves your sort of diverse love of music, I guess. But the context I'm talking about really with this Baroque sound of that first trapeze album is the fact it was produced by John Lodge from Moody Blues. Now, Guy and I were having a chat the other day about mediums and how music changes when the medium changes. Mm -hmm. And one of the big changes in America was FM radio. And am I right to say that Days of Future Past, the Moody Blues record, was kind of geared up as a a record to promote on FM radio? I think you're right. You know, the, the Moody's was ahead of the game back then. But it sounded like you were trying to, you were tapping into some of that. Yes. Again, we were, I was 17 and and we were following suit, if you will. We were on their label. Uh, We were just getting our own sound, our own, and we were sort of like doing a little bit of Moody Blues vibe, progressive music with all those harmonies back then. So, and then a a year later, we changed to a trio and it was more groovy uh, rock stuff. Because, you know, let's be honest, the singing bass player is one of the rarest big beasts in the jungle, right? <laughs> but, and you get a lot of people like someone like, um, I mean, you know, McCartney just does my head in the counterpoint that's happening in his head. And same with Lynette. But you did the same. It's like you were really working on your bass and your vocals yeah. at the same time. I mean, that was, you know. You know, fellas, when I started playing the bass, I really wasn't concerned too much about singing. You know, I was really learning right. how to play bass. And then all of a sudden, the manager of the band said, you know, maybe Glenn could maybe sing a song, maybe, you know, do something. And I sang a song on that first album, the one Gary's talking about, and it went down okay, you know. And then the next album, the, they asked me to sing with the lead singer, and there you go. Wow. Because there's a fantastic footage that I, I yeah, found brilliant. playing Wolverhampton, the, the Club Lafayette. That's correct. If you see that, that's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's from Colour Me Pop. That's right. It's got a young Emperor Roscoe presenting That's right. It. <laughs> and I mean, it is superb black and white footage. It's and really, really kids cool. dancing. Yeah. Did you notice my bass so big and I'm so tiny and skinny that Fender Jazz looks massive? <laughs> who are the keyboard players and who is the other singer more to the point because you it was a kind of there were two of you singing wasn't there was that the horn player no he's, we had a lead singer and john john jones so i was like a bass player singer like i was with with david coverdale like i was this kind of second singer you know it, it worked well you know i worked well with deep purple too so guys i love actually sharing vocals with other people I love singing with other people. I love it. Girls and guys, I just love it. Well, it's, that's just actually gonna, what just gonna um, be good. Gary and I do in the band we're in. We're, we're in Nick Mason's Sorcerer's Secrets. I love Secrets. Nick. Say hi. Well, we'll do. But, you know, we go and we just do all the really early Floyd stuff. And it, it's great. And sort of and Gary and I do it half and half. And it's, it's brilliant because neither of us are actually lead singers or have been before. Mm. And it's that great thing of just not having the pressure <laughs> of carrying yeah. the set. Yeah. You know, that's a very different thing, isn't it? I, look, guys, I, I love singing. I, I'm, I'm so in, in a joyful place when I'm singing. It's everything. In that Lafayette video, though, when you come in, I get a little bit of Stevie Marriott. Back in then, Gary, it might have been because I was only 17. I was still finding the genre of who Glenn is, you know. 
Yeah, Steve was a big, uh, I love Steve, a good friend. And, and yeah, for sure, yeah. you may have heard Steve Marriott there, for sure. And Steve Winwood. Oh, of course. The two Steves. Because if, yeah. um, if you're talking about a sort of rock and soul crossover, then the kind of humble pie have got to be on your radar. Absolutely. Then. Yeah. I love my humble pie. Yeah. I also love Steve Winwood, a huge influence for me. Yeah. Well, all these bands you're mentioning, they, you know, they all took R&B, didn't they? And, yeah. you know, and mixed heavy rock with funk. I mean, that's exactly the pocket we're, we're in. I, I just want to stick on that beginning early days because I read that Apple was going to sign you. Yeah. So who was the A&R man? We were down in London in 1969 doing a, a few showcases at Ronnie Scott's. And and then we met the guy's name. You probably know this. Peter Asher? I forget the guy's name. Mal Evans and another guy. Hebs. All right. Derek Taylor? Uh, I'm trying to think of Beatles' names. There's not many of them. <laughs> He's not with us any longer, but I can't remember. But he was like one of the bosses there. And we went down to record at Abbey Road and they had a new desk that all the engineers were so fucking stones, excuse my language, yes, um, they couldn't figure out how to work the desk. So we never got to record <laughs> down there. <laughs> what? Really? That's so unbelievable. You were just, but uh, also, it's quite unbelievable here because um, the whole thing of Abbey Road is one that always thought of it as being very straight and very chaste and kind of borrows in the pocket. No. You say everyone's yeah, too stoned to her. In 1969, I'm a bit older than you fellas, but 1969 was a big hash year. You know, <laughs> I, I, I never smoked the hash, year of but, the hash. Uh, everybody else was having a go. <laughs> but but so what happened? You just never made the demo, therefore never signed to Apple. We went down there to make, we had this one song, which we recorded with the Moody's, uh, Seminar More Letters, it was called, a very pop song, big on Radio Caroline and Luxembourg. So, yeah, we went there, we recorded that song and, and it, we never got it done. It's a great song, by the way. It's a great song. So this is the Birmingham connection, isn't it, really? Correct. With John Lodge. And what was he like to work with? Oh, John Lodge? Yeah. Yeah. He was wonderful. Talk like this, you know, real probably. <laughs> he was really, he still is a, a good friend, a really great guy. I love the Moody Blues. For many, many, they took Trapeze to America. We didn't even have an album out. And we did 20 shows with them, you know, the, the forum in Los Angeles, the Carnegie Hall. And uh, they gave us a great start. Wow. And how was it with Trapeze? Because were Trapeze kind of on the up? Or did you kind of plateau when for you to take the Purple gig? What was happening? In England, we were doing small gigs like the Marquee, sort of normal stuff, you know. And then the Moody's took us to, to America in 1970, in December, and we played arenas. And from that moment, we got our foot in the door in America. So we basically toured America a lot. And we started playing clubs, and then we moved on to bigger clubs, into small theaters, to larger theaters. And in the end, we were doing uh, arenas. Whoa. Sorry, I've got a bloody great moth in my booth. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so Purple were watching me for about a year. They kept coming to see us play at the Marquee and the, the Whiskey A Go-Go the in whiskey, Hollywood. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. But let's not leave Trapeze right now because no, there's a few ma the moments yeah. of growth that I really love, you know. I do too, I, Gary. I, that, that amazing band, yeah. My love, it's my love, my first love. You mentioned Trapeze, I get all soppy-eyed. Because oh. with Medusa album, the second album, you know, you start to hear there's much more sort of funk coming in, yes. and it, but also more of what Paul Rogers and Free. Sure. So 
I'm just trying to imagine this scene. Obviously, we've got the Birmingham Mafia, right? We've got the Midlands Mafia. We've got we've got Muff and Stevie. You know, we've got the Moody Blues. We've got you and Robert Plant coming up. But I'm just see, thinking, what was the scene you were into? What were you all listening to that was turning music into that? You know, I'm free is a great example of where it's going, right? Well, not many people know this, but I was really, really close friends with Roy Woods. And when Roy put ELO together with Jeff and Bev, they asked me to join. Wow. Really? Don Arden, who was managing the band, came to see me play. He came to see me in his Rolls Royce, as he did. And he got me, he got <laughs> yeah, me drove in, in it. He got me backstage with a cigar and, would you like to join the band? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't say no, could I? I was full of fear. But my mum called him a week later and said, he's not ready to join yet, John. He's not ready to join. No. Bless your mum for standing up to Don Arden, though, mate. Wow, come on. Kudos (laughs) to mum. So you were asked to join Roy Wood's band or ELO? I'm sorry, slightly confused there. Right when they put the band together, they hadn't recorded any music yet. They asked me to come and play bass and be one of the singers. You know, Roy and Jeff were the singers and they wanted me to be another singer who play bass. So, but I declined at the last, last hurdle. So was Roy going to be in ELO? Yeah, Roy, yeah, I know right. they, Roy, were, they were both in the move, obviously, but I didn't realise that they were both going to ELO. I thought ELO was the split that Jeff made. I, I got to catch up on my history. Somebody brought an album for me to sign last night and it was an ELO album. Somebody knew about that story. So I thought I'd tell you about it today because I forgot about it. But yeah, John Arden came and... Uh, he offered me this olive branch, and I was too frightened to say no, as one would. But I stayed in Trapeze, and I went to America with the Moody Blues, and the rest is history. Wow. Right. On the the, uh, the follow-up, You Are The Music. Mm, my favourite. We're just the band. I mean, coast to coast. Yeah. yeah. What is a woman's role? Yeah. Two tracks that you wrote and sing. Yeah. Blew my mind Thank when you. I listened to those. I've never heard them before. Okay. And I was shocked i mean it is coast coast is now one of my favorite songs thank you of all time i mean it was so different to anything i mean who wrote the song tell me what happened how did that song begin because it's totally stevie wonder isn't it yeah really? it's, it yeah. was i mean remember now this is 1971 and music of my mind it helped stevie's i was going yeah stevie is on fire at this point isn't it yeah this is the time when i was really really listening to tamla motown and the new tamla which i call stevie the new tamla and I'm a, a major seven and minor nine freak. <laughs> you can so hear Coast that. to Coast has got those chords in it. So it's a very simple song, you know. Simple songs are the best, aren't they? So it's like uh, one of my favorites. Thank you so much for the love. It's quite funny because what you point those are real 80s chords as well, aren't they? Well, they are. <laughs> I mean, yes, they, they are. are yeah. The song sort of blew me away because, you know, I know you as as a rock guy. Sure. You're the voice of rock, but this is <laughs> utterly, you know, soul, you know, and yeah. then, uh, you know, what is, what is a woman's voice? You know, there was a band later on that I got into that no one seems to have ever heard of. My brother and I went to see them numerous times. They were called a band called O. Oh, yeah. Never Ring saw that band. Again, it's that, you know, because we have bands like, I guess Little Feet were around as well later on. And, and it was that sort of an influence you know, soul v- and soul rock mix. But you had that, and Jess Roden and people like that. There was a lot oh, of I love that. Jeff. Yeah. He was a great singer. Yeah. And another Birmingham bloke. Yeah. Do you remember the, the purple being in the whiskey? I, I, you know, I did. Blackmore was there. 
we, as you know, we played like there's a three night residency. Each night, one of them, like you know, obviously not Dylan and Glover because they they were the guys leaving. But back then, I was so naive and so young, I had no idea they were checking me out. You know, uh, I just like well, they loved my band and they becoming friendly. Had a couple of drinks and but they kept coming to see me play. You know, and then I was in New York in May of 1973 and they were playing Madison Square Garden and John invited me over. And the next morning at breakfast, they uh, they asked me if I'd like to uh, to join as get this as a bass playing singer. I'm going, wow. well, I thought you needed a singer. Well, yeah, but we want Rishi wants to have a bass playing singer and a lead singer. Do you know that they asked Paul Rogers to join? And I basically, this is a cool story. I said, yes, I'll join the band because I wanted to sing with Paul, my, my friend Paul. That would have been great. But, yeah, that's true. Wow. But so, hey, so Roger was definitely out at this point. So, yeah, they, so it wasn't like they wanted a spare bass player just in case. <laughs> Why did Roger and Ian leave? Just clear me up on that one. Well, you know, guys, I hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble here, but when I went into that boardroom in the Essex House in New York, when I was walking in, I'm going, I know Ian Gillan was walking. He was leaving the band. I did not know Roger was leaving also. So, obviously, I knew they were going to ask me to join as maybe a singer. And I was quite shocked. They wanted me just to play bass and kind of a second singer. And I was like, do I really want to do that? After Trapeze, we were doing really well in America. Uh-huh. Although Purple were doing magnificent. Smoke on the Water was number one, as you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, you know, the idea for me to, again, share the microphone with what would have been Paul Rogers at that moment, I'm going, well, this sounds great. Yeah. But he had already got bad company together. Wow. I love the, the boardroom at the Essex House. I mean, the that's boardroom. a pretty intimidating yeah, room it was to walk into. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a good day. So when did the Cove come around? Six weeks later. I joined in, in uh, early June. We got him kind of early September-ish. You know, only auditioned one guy, and, and it was him. We heard a lot of demos from all over the place. We heard him singing, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, you know. You never close the really deep <laughs> voice. Because I've got that high voice, you know, he's got the low. David's got a really great lower register. Oh, oh, oh it's a just talking voice. Do you I know, when I was forever. recording with him, and he used to do this thing of going, I'm going to save my voice for the vocal yes. so, so I'll just sing it low. And so he'd just sort of sing it an octave lower than when he was going to do it. And then when he'd go and do the high, you know, the actual take, and it was fantastic. But it's like, man, that sounded magnificent before, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Look, can of worms time. I love David's lower register. I mean, he knows this. I think a lot of people do. I think prior to the album 1987, when the octaves went up, prior to that, he was more the bluesy stuff. Absolutely, Um, yeah. Yeah, and in purple, he was bluesy like that too, and I love that about his voice. Well, I also think having you there was kind of gave him the freedom to to keep the solely side yeah. of things, you know. I mean, when we, when we did those records, we were at the microphone. There's one microphone. Oh, after you, no, you. Oh, after you, you take that line. It was so nice. It's so easy. Because David has a nickname forever. I mean, I'm Guido. Um, <laughs> he must. What was his name for you? It couldn't have been just Glenn. 
must be the G man or something. <laughs> I was the G man, but yes. we were called. He called, us, he called me and David. We were called the unrighteous brothers. <laughs> Uh, uh, the unrighteous uh, brothers that's perfect uh, just as a sidebar why is it do we think that in this macho world of heavy rock how is it men singing falsetto is the most macho i don't you know it's kind of you're absolutely right it's always baffled me that i don't know i again coming from the the cover band era of the midlands in like the, the late 60s a lot of people were covering the Beach Boys and and I was given this high part to sing and I've always loved singing and I love singing harmony I do a lot of harmonies on my records mm-hmm. or I do all it myself but I just love falsetto singing if it's done appropriately we know that but so I think Gary's point is like I remember someone once saying to me about like you know Bruce from Iron Maiden it's like here's this guy singer of the biggest band in the world Olympic level fencer qualified pilot everything but if he found out the guy from Striper could sing half a note above him his world would collapse <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I think yeah, do you exactly. know what I think it is I think Robert Plant was one of the first person in early doors but I also think, and, and what you're saying, right, Glenn, about those Beach Boys records, but I just think it's the sheer volume. You know, if you're turning up that guitar and bass and the right. drums are playing hard, there's only one place for you to be heard, and that's above everything. Yeah, I get that. And some nights I have a go, well, last time I'm going, I think I may have sang that one too high. It, it can happen. i got to centre myself before I start singing these days, you know. But I, I love singing up there in the top register. Do you have to warm up to that? I do a 45-minute warm-up before the show, a sound check. I, I do five songs in the dressing room with my band, and I'm ready to go. Brilliant. That's good. But another little thing, just talking about being in purple, one thing from watching a lot of your solo things that's really, really poignant and nice is that it's like you always carry Tommy Bolin with you, don't you? Of course. Yeah, that's, but you always honour him at every gig. I do. I, yeah. Ideally, when he got the gig, I took him to my house and he stayed with me for a month. Uh, Tommy, we all know what happened to him and, and how he died. It was so sad. But he was a childlike, beautiful guy. And I dearly, dearly loved him and still do. And I will carry his legacy with me until the very end of time. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just go back to that, to the Burn album. And, you know, you've got some heavyweights in there, right? You have John Lord and, and, and Richie Blackmore. How do you, as a young kid, begin the writing process on that record and, and what what stories do you have from that period how did it develop well guys do you remember uh, there's a castle on border welsh border called clearwell castle in gloucestershire that zeppelin hired and purple hired maybe um joe cock was down there when we were there uh, and and a lot of people were actually going in there to write pre-produce their records before they went to wherever they were going, we were always in Switzerland. But so we went down to this castle and we were actually set up in the dungeon in this castle. <laughs> so Blackmore. Nothing says imperial rock pomp like going to a castle, does it? We wrote two albums in the crypt. And of course, Blackmore <laughs> used to take me down the crypt at, at night, night. <laughs> with a Ouija board. <laughs> with a Ouija board. Oh he was frightened to death. Any moments from the Ouija board that did it speak yeah, to you? Yeah, we had a few moments where he actually freaked out. 
Yeah, he, well, it wasn't pretty. He lost his marbles down there. But how was the writing process? Did you feel that you could flex your muscles? Yeah, I mean, we would we'd just start riffing and we'd start coming up with bits and pieces. And the songs just came, they came together as a band, you know, we sort of like in the room. Back in the day, that's what people did. Unless you were the Who, where Pete wrote everything. But with Zeppelin and Purple and other bands like and that, Floyd. it was like a, a group yeah. consciousness. You know. You'd just turn up and jam, so no one would turn up with a song. You had to put all your minor ninths and major sevenths in the box. <laughs> I didn't get to use them so much. Only yeah. on this time around I could get to use those, but I had to leave the uh, the minor nines and major sevens behind. Yeah. <laughs> on the Burn album, which, obviously the Burn album is an extraordinary record. And uh, What was the, that recording process? Was there a feeling of like, this is, this is going to... Because you had a lot to live up to, you know in rock and fireball and machine head. Oh man. I mean, was there a sense of fear in the camp? As you guys, you know that you're you're family men. So you know that when you've got two new guys coming into a five piece band, the sense of the camaraderie, brotherhood, friendship, we'll have dinner tonight. It was like a brand new band. Mm -hmm. It just felt like brand new and everybody was so happy. Blackmore was actually giggling. So, yeah, it was cool. It was great. <laughs> not not cliquey. You know, no, it was right in Bern at that, uh, in the summer of 73 was in the beautiful hot summer. It was fantastic. I remember it really well. Uh, was there much of a jump for you? I mean, just like on a personal level, because Deep Purple were pretty grandiose at this they were. point, weren't they? You know, they were, I mean, there was talk of buying the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and kind of... Yeah, you know. I mean, they were at, <laughs> at that time, you could Google it, the biggest rock band in the world in, in 73, 74. And I, you know, it was great to be part of that. But there was no airs of, there was no like, a little bit of pomposity, of course, but mm-hmm. it was a very British band. Um, and again, we we just were close, as close as one could be. Uh, not, yeah, there's nothing better than that band of brothers hitting the road. But David had not done anything. He'd never really been on a real Rock and he was roll a kid stage. as well. He hadn't really recorded any music, so he was kind of brand new to that. And he, was he know. living in Germany at that point? No, he was living in red car. Was <laughs> uh, he moved to Germany in in, in early seventy four? Right. What you begin to hear in Stormbringer? Oh, here's a little sidebar. So Stormbringer's the next album. This I like, guy. The front cover of Stormbringer is a storm, right? Yeah. It's a photograph of a storm. But it's been used on two other covers. Did you know that, Glenn? No. It's the same photograph from Miles Davis's Witch's Brew. Stop it. And which came before. And it's the same photograph that got used in Susie and the Banshees' later album right now, which I can't name, but someone who listens to this will probably remind us. And um, this, yeah. Glenn, is why you want Gary on your pub quiz team. <laughs> I love it. I'll take it. It's, a, it's an old picture taken by a woman that I can't remember. Oh, is it not a stock picture? Not from... It was a stock picture, but it got obviously it looks different on every because you, know, you know, you know, Miles's face isn't basically on Deep Purple Stormbringer, is it? You know, no. But it, you look, you look at it, and you'll see. It. Anyway, but what I was going to ask the, the question I was building up to was, it gets a, a bit funkier. On Stormbringer. It does. You know, you break the rules a bit. Is that you? Well, okay. We didn't know. uh, During the the making of Stormbringer, I wouldn't say at the castle, but when we went to Germany to start, well, actually, in the crypt 
on Stormringer. <laughs> Blackmore only brought in two songs. He brought in Stormringer, the music, and a song called Soldier of Fortune, which was like a acoustic piece. And the rest of it, the music was written by John Lord and myself and, and Ian Pace. So we had to come up with some music. And me, <laughs> having the... The, my influences came out on that record, you know. So, and by the way, guys, they didn't, they didn't think it was wrong. They thought it was a natural progression at the time to do that, you know. So mm. David and I brought our own soulful R&B influences. And well, so, well, it's the bass player. You can really move things in that direction as yeah, well. Yeah, and it, you know, in- again, we talk about these songs on Storming. There were some groovy moments there. I thought mm-hmm. the songs were great. Look, it's a different vibe on Stormbringer to, to Burn, but when Richie took his feet off the gas, we kind of changed it up a little bit. Right, 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 right. Because you sang lead on some of those tracks as well, didn't you? I did, yeah. I sang Holy Man, and David and I do a lot of duets on that record, you know. And was that all quite obvious? Yeah. Was going to, yeah. Again, David and I were very, very cool with each other about who was going to sing what it's like oh no after you take that line oh no thank you so much it was so nice david and i never ever ever one time had a problem with who should sing what you know so there was no ego sense of like david feeling like you know oh it wasn't like this in ian's day nope not at all that's great brilliant by the way i found what i was talking about so a tornado near the town of jasper minnesota was photographed by lucille handberg and okay. in 1927 it was on miles davis's bitches brew stormbringer and Susie's and the banshees album tinderbox in 1986 i'll have to check that out yeah <laughs> well and it's actually on sale at sotheby's and gary you've got a bid in haven't you <laughs> <laughs> love it how was the touring with the band? Was it? Yeah. It was It was good. Is it starting to get a bit kind of messy? Well, you know, like we had the, a private jet called the Starship and a huge plane. And that's the Zeppelin one, right? The, the Zeppelin, Zeppelin, yeah. Used, and yeah. it was amazing. You can imagine, right? And at this time, you know, I guess Ronnie Dio and Richie were tight. And, you know, halfway through uh, the Stormringer tour, Richie decided he was going to bail and, uh, he decided to leave the band and form How Rainbow. Was that? Yeah. But what was his reason for that? Who was he not talking to you guys? Or uh, you know, I think he wanted to play more kind of classic, cool rock kind of bar kind of influence stuff. Wanted to go a little bit. I don't think he really enjoyed. Yeah, you know, that's a thing that can happen with guitarists with, with super chops guitarists. They can go. They either go the jazz way, yeah. like Beck, or it's because it's because you just get used to doing all these scales and arpeggios. Mm. You start thinking, "Wait, Bach." Well, yeah. <laughs> I get a lot of questions about what happened when you know the Stormringer songs made a, a U-turn or whatever. When Richie didn't bring any music in, we had no choice but to write stuff in the room that were, was a little different. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, you know. It was just different. I thought I loved the Stormbringer album personally. I love the songs. Was it that uh, he wasn't happy that there wasn't really his music on it, but he wasn't really bringing any music to it? Guy, it, it, I think he it was done. He didn't tell us, but it was obviously right. he was done. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a pretty ride, but we were we were okay. 
was there a sense of freedom? I mean, bringing Tommy in and writing, was was there a sense that the, the teacher's not looking anymore? Right. Or, or was John the power <laughs> in the band? I'm, I'm so interested where the power lies. Is it with, was it with John or was it with Richie? Oh, uh, to be honest with you, I've got to be honest, I think Richie had really the final say. Really, that, that's in my opinion. But John was a force of nature, as we know, and we just love him. But the band yeah. itself, you, you got that Ian, John, and Richie, and you bring David and Ian, and you got two new guys, and it's not Gillen and Glover anymore. It's not that way. And and hopefully people understand everything. As you know, everything changes. Yeah. And you can't repeat. I, I'm not one to repeat. So, Yeah. But I know what I mean, but I, I think what sort of Gary's getting at is that sort of thing of, of was it like there was a sort of a Blackmore and a Lord, sort of those are the, the, the two sources of power within the band. Did you feel you were being co-opted towards one or the other? Or was Blackmore just kind of backing out? There was never really a moment where we felt that. But, you know, obviously, Rishi brought a lot of music, you know, and uh, great. I mean, he was the... Basically, you can bring a lot of stuff in from Purple 1, 2, 3. So when you took his music away, there had to be new music written, and we did that. And how did you find Tommy Bowler? Where was he just brought in? How was he brought in? We auditioned two people. Clem Clemson was the first. Oh, Clem, oh. from Humble Pie. Clem Clemson, my dear friend Clem. And oh. the week later, we brought Tommy in. We found him. He was in Malibu. Yeah, how did you find him? What was he doing? He was living in Malibu, and, and we found him, and we... Great story. He came down, and I... Bowie was living at my house. That thing. Bowie drove me down to SIR. Oh, hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just say Bowie was Bowie living at my house. when he was making Station to Station. State? No way! Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember. I heard about this. God, man, that must have been a yeah. little chemical relationship oh as well, Glenn, I'm thinking, right? Yeah, he was, he, was a... he, he was at my house for a couple of months. and we Were the beds ever used at all? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, look, you know, he came out from New York and alone. On the, I picked him up at the, at the train station. So, hang on, so you already know Bowie at this point? Come on. Whoa! whoa. Yeah, we, we met in um, 1974 at the Beverly Wilshire. I was having a party one night and he, he walked in. And uh, he never left, really. I mean, he was, uh, we were very, very, very good friends. Oh, mate. Yeah. I remember this now. And I remember this from reading a Bowie biog at some point. But I didn't, I I forgot it was you, Glenn. Yeah. So what was he like, though? How was it? Did you watch him write? Was he writing around you? Well, do you remember, guys, in 1974, he was like a young Americans. And Mm -hmm. David Live in Philadelphia, he was into his blue-eyed soul movement, mm-hmm. remember? And yeah. Bowie, he'd seen me on the Cal Jam singing my R&B stuff. He was fascinated why this English guy with long hair and, and snakeskin boots would, would be have this uh, genuine love for R&B. So we were R&B fanatics, and we found a lot of things to talk about. Yeah. Is this the same time you, you did your first solo album? He was going to produce it. it we, we, I was writing it. He went off with Iggy instead, but David was part of I was going to uh, say, you could have ended up with Lust for Life. <laughs> yes. So there you go. But in that, it's 1974, 75, 76. We were very, 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 very close. And um, 
I'll never forget it. He was such a beautiful guy. Uh, huge, very, very generous. Did you stay in touch, Glenn? Yeah, I mean, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, he was He was always very, very kind. Wow. So hang on. So sorry, we've, we've gone way off here. So, so you're living in Malibu with David Bowie and... Tommy Boland shows up right. here somehow. David drops me off down at SIO and I walk in and I see a guy with green and orange and purple hair and I walk over to this guy, Tommy Boland, and I said, I whispered in his ear, I said, if you don't get the gig, you're coming home with me anyway. But he did get the gig and he, he came to my house and uh, we had a great time. Wow. So writing that album, Come Taste the Band, I mean, obviously, that track you do with John this time around, which we spoke about at the beginning of the show, it's so, uh, you know, I I absolutely love that track. Love Thank it. you. But it's not purple. No. And what was the reaction from the fans? You know, John and I were in the studio alone having a, a cavozier maybe at three o'clock in the morning and John's playing the minor nines and major sevens. <laughs> and I start singing this time around. I, I came up with the lyric and pretty much instantly. And we recorded it uh, the next morning with Pacey. And uh, we just, we, we thought it was a cool track, you know. So, yeah, it was different to anything they'd done before. I'm glad it got used. But as Guy said, how, how was the reaction from the fans? Yeah. I think in general... I think everybody knew the band had changed so much. Uh, so with that particular song, they, I think a lot of people loved it. You know, we, mm. we, we thought it was a cool song. You know, it's a, one, one of our favourites. And, yeah, look, it doesn't sound like uh, Deep Purple, but it's, I think it's a cool song. And John, yeah, John and I wrote that song. It was great. Can I, can I say that there's the, on the 35th anniversary edition of Come Taste the Band, there's, which is remixed by Kevin Sherman? Yeah. That version, that version is astonishing. Thank you. I feel like on the Come Taste the Band version, there's a little bit of sort of like trying to hide your voice in it and not really <laughs> wanting to go full on R&B soul record with it. Yeah. The mix and John synths a bit too loud. and But that remix, Kevin Shirley. I was just working with Kevin last week. Yeah, yeah that's... Oh, wow, great. Yeah. I don't know much about Kevin Shirley. There's... Yeah, he's a South African fella. Worked with Jimmy and Robert, and he works with yeah, uh, my friend Joe Bonamassa. Of course, Black Country Communion. We we've just done album number five, so it's all we're all very 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 busy. So, how did it end for you with Purple? The band we, we had done an extended tour, and we were in the UK. Let's just say we were frazzled, you know. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, it's like the climate, you know, it's a change. And it was like uh, we were getting tired. Uh, it was not a good time for a couple of us, you know. One of us died, and, and another guy got, I've been sober now for, I had a drink in 31 years. And, and unfortunately, Tommy didn't go that route. And um, uh, that was the end. Yeah, it was a, a sad. Look, the band had, had done its course. Mm -hmm. And uh, but hang on, and after because this is the first breakup, you go back to Trapeze. I right? did. I went. Yeah. I had one more go with Trapeze. Yeah. And because what have they been doing? Have they just been soldiering on with someone. Did you have to go in and replace someone, or they had a couple of guys come in and, and take my spot, and they were doing okay. 
Uh, and then when Purple broke up, I went in and did Play Me Out, my solo album. In the same summer, in 76, I took Trapeze back to America. And we did some arena shows, and they were great. It was fantastic. Wow. Did you feel a little bit like you didn't know who you were at that point? Was there ever that moment where, am I a solo artist? Am I a band guy? You know, because you did make quite a few solo records. Mm. And, you know, obviously some of them had great, there were sort of Robert Palmer types, sort of mm. funk and soul feel to them. You even made a Christmas record, right? So, I did. You know, Gary, that's a really good observation because after Purple, I felt when I went, even went back with Trapeze in 76, it was, although it's my band, I felt I was a solo artist. Uh, as a writer, I feel all these years later, I am a solo, solo artist, you know. But you still have that lovely thing of being able to insert yourself into, oh, yeah. into things as well. You know, Especially you know. with Black Country Community. We don't do that many shows, as you know, but it's a great brotherhood. It really with Jason Bonham, of course, and Derek Shirinian and Joe Bonham after and myself. Yeah. And that's much, much more sort of Zeppelin style, straight up rock, really. Yeah. Yeah we're, yeah, we're really excited about the new album. We're very, very happy with it. I'm going to sing it next week when I go home. Ah. Oh. <laughs> so, so what, what do you mean you're going to sing? You, you're, you're, you're doing your vocals. You're, you're recording it in the States. Yeah, I'm, actually, I'm going to sing some of it. In, I've got a studio in Copenhagen, and I'll record some of it there. And I'll go back to Sunset Sound in Hollywood and do some more work there. Fantastic. So we've left Purple. There's the solo albums. And then the 80s? You know... I say it in my book, I don't remember the 1980s. Let's just yeah. say I was having my moment of despair over served at the bar, if you will, without going too much into detail. The 80s was not, a, I made a few albums that did well, yeah. but I don't remember, you know. I did a Black Sabbath album, but I don't remember it. That's right. Yeah, that was that was like eighty five, wasn't 85, it? Eighty five, correct. Singer. Yeah, that was a strange mm. album because because so, obviously wasn't that going to be a Tony Omi solo? Record correct. For a bit? That's right. Yeah, Don Arden was managing that band, and and <laughs> I started singing this record. And oh, did you not have your mum to protect you anymore? Not, not anymore. <laughs> he, he was the cigar was massive now. <laughs> yeah. But no, that was an album that was supposed to be a Tony album, and then at the end, uh, Warner Brothers decided we'll call it Black Sabbath. So. But I'm not a metal singer, so... So you don't remember it, but did you tour with it? Yeah, I did like nine shows, and uh, let's just say uh, it didn't work out for me. I felt uncomfortable singing to young lads' stuff. Um, I'm not a metal artist, so it was a little uncomfortable for me. I'm a rocker, you know. Yeah, it's no, interesting no, that though, because because obviously you can hear in those early days, you know, you can hear what you were doing with Trapeze and obviously what Purple were doing. You can hear the beetling of what becomes Judas Priest and Iron yes. Maiden, etc. Yeah. But there's another branch that goes off somewhere else, which you're on, which is R and B. Yes. And what makes what's the difference between what you do and what Purple did and what a metal singer does? Well, you see, for me again, if I go back to 1965 when I was 13. I was influenced in my household. My mum and dad were R&B fans, and it was in my blood. I'm sure you've got the same story with certain kinds of genres you like, you know, and it's in your blood and you, you have to release it. Nobody put a gun to my head and say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. I just, it came out. It just comes out of me all the time. When, when you hear Glenn Hughes, you'll go, you know, he's, yeah. he's doing his soulful thing, and that's what my soulful singer. Right. But then, okay, if we're sort of skipping over the aces, I'm sort of because there's something I really, really, really want to talk about, 
which is sort of your rebirth. And it's it's just one of the most fantastically bombastic tongue in cheek records ever made. And okay. that's the KLF one. Yeah. I mean, it's and you in that video, man, just fantastic. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, I got a call from Bill Drummond, what, 1990 or 91? I know they no, did. 91 it, it would have been. It came out the, in 22. They yeah. had the Tommy Wynette uh, video out. Yeah. And Jimmy and Bill, they, they were trapeze fans. They were massive trapeze fans. They wanted to have someone they would call the voice of rock on a song called What Time Is Love America. You know, rumor has it they were going to talk to Robert uh, and uh, maybe somewhat and i was the first guy to go down to the studio and give it a go so i sang that track and after about an hour they said well would you want to like do a video with us and that's when i said to myself i gotta go and get sober now <laughs> you know oh wow I, yeah this is when i i had a life a life-changing moment where i'm going it looks mm-hmm. like i'm gonna have a good shot here you know Oh man! So Bill and Jimmy really did you yeah, a solid. There. They they didn't mention it. I, I I know and adore. I've worked with Jimmy a lot, and I adore him. He's, he's very I, I very too. talented. So very talented. I realized in December of ninety one when at that time that I may have an opportunity to look at myself and get well. So a tip of the hat to those guys. They didn't oh, ask that's me to so get nice. They didn't yeah, ask yeah, but me. That's so nice to hear. Yeah, and they didn't. You look amazing in that video. I mean, you really, you know, that's. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great video. It's a great song, you know. What, what was that like? I know, because you're just in pouring rain here and burning boats. Yeah. <laughs> it was. There were really rats on that boat, and it was. It was. It, 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 like it looked, it was. It was fucking wet. <laughs> great song, you know. Yeah, uh, I would advise anyone doesn't know to go and check it out. We were mentioning Black Country Community and and Bonamassa. Bonamassa, great collector of guitars. Mm. He brought Tommy's guitar home, didn't he? He did. Tell us about that. He'd been looking for that guitar for seven years. He's been trying to get that guitar. Seven years. And he finally got Les it Paul. last year. He got it. Wow. And um, but I got a story for you. So he bought it from Tommy's ex-guitar tech. And he bought it, gave him the cash, and the guy went in the desert and buried the money. He buried the money in the desert, and a week later, he died. So the money, $175,000, is buried in the desert. So it's a true story. (sighs) Buried in the desert. God. Which desert? I know. I, I, I Somewhere, you know... There's got to be a map. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know where, but... We're coming to uh, you now, think... Glenn. We have the drugs. We will get it out of you. <laughs> <laughs> right. For, I mean... It's somewhere in what? In the West Coast? Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing has he got story. Fa- he must, has he got family? They must be tearing their hair out. Yeah, the, I met the daughter last week because we, we were making the album in the LA and we spoke about this, you know. So it's a kind of a side story here that uh, kind of epic story about the missing money it sounds like drug behavior to me maybe he was loaded i do not know but he buried the money uh, what yeah. was the year of the Les, what year of les paul is it it's a les paul nine, a 1960 les paul right so top of the range it's beautiful guitar oh, 
Talking of guitars, I got this recently and I absolutely love it. And I've noticed you have a bass that looks exactly the same. I don't uh -huh. know if it's the same, eh? Which is... Yes. What now, is what's it? yours? Describe this it. Is Bill, this yeah. is a Bill Nash. Describe it for our <laughs> Guy. It's a copy of a 57 Precision with a maple neck. It's yes. black body with anodized scratch plate. And why I never got hip to those before, because it's the coolest looking bass. Oh, I have the same one. I got a few, actually. Bill's been very good to me. Oh, it's Bill. Bill Nash, yeah. I got a, I love Bill. And I, 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 I love Bill. Love him to death. I, yeah. I, I do use my original early 60s bases on the albums. But when I travel, I, I take my Nash bases. They are amazing. That's interesting because Bill basically chose this colourful. He said, no, no, this is what you want. And I'm wondering if he's just giving me your bass. <laughs> no, I don't know. Bill, I love Bill. Is that a B neck or C? Uh, I'm so glad you asked me that. It's probably a B. That's a B. It's probably a B. B. Yeah. No, it's not a V. It's a, it's it's a, a C minus if it's guy. C neck. C minus, surely. <laughs> it's a C neck. But the round one rather than the V one. You mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us about the other uh, project you do, the Dead Daisies. Yeah, I did the Dead Daisies for three years. With they Doug, came, darling. They, they came in and asked me to do an album, and I did. And then I did another album. And then, I, I have to be honest with you, I started missing my own guys, my band. And Black Country were getting back together again to make the album, number five. And, and I thought it was an opportunity for me to go back to my, my family of brothers and play my music with the... Uh, my own band and uh, I was missing my own band with my own music and the dead days was an, a nice journey into another kind of world and it was great the, the days is I mean it's clearly I mean it has an amazing run of people go through it and it does very very well and everything does it feel like a band uh, yeah you know it I mean? did when... uh, uh, I know where you're going with this guy um, oh, I'm, 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 I'm treading very lightly yeah I appreciate that <laughs> Yeah, it's a band, but an unusual one. Yeah. I say that with respect because... Yeah, that, no, absolutely. Um, David Lowy, the fellow, we're obviously skirting around the issue here. He takes <laughs> care of everything and he's a good guy. And he, you know... But his life outside the band is extraordinary. It's not just, for, you know, he's this amazing aerobatics pilot. He's oh, started he's an air truly museum a, and everything. He's like, he's a, you know, proper adventurer he really frontier, is a, you know. a beautiful human being yeah. a kind considerate man who loves rock and roll yeah there's well, not many people like him fellas that can front this huge amount of stuff that's going on and so i i, I tip of that to him from me mm -hmm. and the band i had a great time in that band but i wanted to go back to my own my own world again because, you, yeah, you're always, you are so consistently busy. Well, yeah. Going, aren't you? You know, it's, <laughs> you're I mean, absolute tip of the hat for that. Do you feel like you're making up for the 80s? Is that what it is? Glenn? You know, you know, Gary, I must be. But, you know, I've been sober a long time and I've been working a great, pro you know, well, I can't say that, but I'm good. I've got a great wife. Uh, a I great hear you, Glenn. I hear you, Glenn. You know, so I've been <laughs> doing it a long time and I've got a great friends around the world i love making music i well, like making I love. brand new music i you love know, playing have, live i love singing live you, you know we had marty wilde on who's 84 last week <laughs> marty and, wilde. Uh, he was he, he was he was amazing he says he writes songs every day really you know and I, and I look at you you know this is your job and you're doing it and you're you've got so much vitality and yet i can find an old footage of you 
from the Lafayette, nineteen sixty, whatever. And it's like that's like another world. It is. It's been sixty years, right? I love that footage. I know that I know you're talking the Club Lafayette with Emperor Roscoe. Yeah. I love that footage. I was such a young kid. And my band was so good. That band was so good, that five-piece band. So good and cutting edge. Like, you know, right, that's kind of as hip as anyone yeah. was being back then. And uh, also, you're incredibly lucky to have that food because there isn't good TV of, of people who aren't, you know, who aren't the Beatles or the Stones or, you know. No. Or who of anyone back then. No, I, I mean, I am a Brit. I mean, I've lived in America most of my life. But when I look back at growing up in the in the, in the the North and then, coming down to the mighty smoke to make some some new friends and Apple, Moody Blues, you know, my friendship with uh, Keith Moon and a few other uh, people we know and Bonzo. Uh, I mean, I've got some great stories in my life and most of them, my buddies aren't here any longer. So um, am I the last man standing? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what do you feel that you're the most proud of? M- most proud of? Um, yeah. Well, I'm proud that I'm sober, that's for damn sure. I'm proud that I actually, when I got newly sober, a couple of my friends said, you know, you're going to go on and make even greater songs, you know, become a better songwriter, a better singer. I said, how can that be? But the thing is, I can sing better now because I'm not loaded, you know. So, yeah, I just love singing and writing. Great. Well, thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. And, And long may you, mate. Long may you. You're a, you know, you're a, Beacon. Oh, I, I love you two fellas. I'm glad you invited me on your show. Some of my friends have been on your show, so I'm glad to be included. It sounds like it. It sounds like <laughs> sounds like they've all been your friends. Yes. I'd love Richie on if we could get him out of the castle. Well, I can't get him on the blow. I have to speak to his mother-in-law. He asked me to come back and play with him five years ago. I didn't fancy doing what he was doing, so... Blackmore's Night. Isn't it sort of medieval? Yes, he wanted he wanted me to play Dungeons and Dragons, and I really I didn't want to go. You can't imagine me donning the blackadder costume, you know, the wimple. You got the legs for it. Let's be honest. Well, ah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but but you know, come on, he's doing the music he loves with with the person yeah. he loves, right? You know, I, I love him. I never had a falling out with him. He's a crazy, crazy, incredibly gifted young man, old man, whatever you want to call it. But he's a talented guy, and there's only one Richie Blackmore, let's be clear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, you've got some UK shows coming up. Yes. Right? i got three Tell or four us. in July. And the, I, the, my proper tour is uh, 10 shows in October. Ah. 10 shows. And that's you as, just going out just as you, is it? It's, yeah. It's, it's the Glenn Hughes performs classic Deep Purple Lives. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, we'll have to come along. At some point, I will go back to being Glenn. But right now, I'm, I'm honouring the classic Deep Purple legacy songs. But at some point, I will go back to playing the solo songs again, which I miss. Yeah. There's so many. Well, I again, I love writing. <laughs> All right, man. Lovely to talk to you. Glenn, it's been an absolute joy, mate. Thank hey, you so fellas, much. Thank you so much and, and continued success to both of you. I, I love you both. And I look forward to seeing you at some point this year. A real really honour. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you both. Bye. Bye. It's always nice when it's someone who's just kind of still full of life and love for it and, you know, doing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No, no cynicism about, you know, anything he's ever done. 
I don't know if, if we get some credit here, but because, you know, I listened to quite a few interviews and, and a lot of them were very serious. There was, there was a lightness here that I, was just gorgeous. Well, I think sometimes when you're talking to journalists, you can be on the back foot a little yeah. bit. You know. But it was also, I just got really into that deep purple world, which I've, you know, even talking to the cover, I didn't really get into as much. Yeah, as, that's, yeah. And, and, uh, and it was just interesting. And it just makes me want to get Richie Blackmore on the show. Uh, and unfortunately, we can't have John. Pacey. Or Pacey. Or Pacey. Um, you know, sadly, John has left us. Which yeah. Is well, yes. Great, you know, I but, still miss greatly. What else have you got to say? We have extras, right? We have extras is what you're going to say. I was exactly what I was going to say uh, is um, please everyone if you enjoy sign up for Rock on Tours Extras where we'll be waffling about all sorts of other stuff we will and uh, we do a little bit of extra stuff uh, the other day didn't we which I really enjoyed we, do, we talked about Glastonbury and we talked about uh, mediums and uh, mediums not Ouija boards not yeah, Richie we, Blackmore's yeah, that, Ouija well, that's board. actually a preamble for the Richie Blackmore uh, episode, <laughs> hopefully. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Ben, from Gimme Sugar. And it's good night from me. And good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK.